My name is Mark Madison, and I am so very proud to have Fujitsu General America as a sponsor. At Fujitsu, they're focused on partnering with the best distributors and contractors to ensure that each Fujitsu heating and cooling system brings infinite comfort to every end user. Roy Newey left school at age 16 with no qualifications. Although profoundly dyslexic, he started his first business at age 22 and built it to a 5 million pound revenue per year and sold it. Pounds, as in England. He invested in small businesses and grew them into big businesses, 180 million pounds annually. He's delivered keynote speeches on business excellence, education skills, leadership, poverty, and disadvantage in over 75 countries. And he has a brand new book, Ready, Set, Grow. Good afternoon. This is Mark Madison. Welcome to On Books and People. We have a special guest today, all the way across the pond. Mr. Roy Newey, how are you, sir? Hi, I'm, I'm great, thank you. And I'm thankful for everything that uh, is going well for, for me and my family. And I hope everybody out there is safe. You know, it's a difficult time for everyone. And uh, lots of bumps in the roads, but lots of opportunity. This too shall pass. Yes, absolutely. Well, I was trying to remember how we connected, and I believe it was online, but I don't remember if it was Facebook or LinkedIn, but it was it was because LinkedIn. of your new... Oh, LinkedIn, okay. And it was because yeah, yeah. of your book, Ready, Set, Grow. That's it. Thank you. Now, when was it released? So it was released in uh, 1st of September this year, and I, I wrote it during the first, the first wave of COVID. So... Uh, I was at home for a few days and my wife said to me, Roy, surely you've got something, a project or something you could be working on. So I said, I'm, I'm going to write a book. She went, of course you are. So I did. So Sounds like you married up. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, <laughs> here's the thing. So did I. I. I don't know where I'd be without my wife. We've been together for 41 years. So wow. you left school at 16 with no qualifications. You were dyslexic. Yep. And at age 22, you built this amazing business and then sold it. Tell us about how you got started in business. Okay. So I, I was, I was considered a bright kid at school, but they put me in for nine of our, you know, sort of junior exams and I managed to fail all of them. And my mum stood in the hall with me at home and she said, um, let's open the envelope. We opened the envelope. And next to each, each subject, maths, geography, history, it said U slash C. And she said, oh, I don't know what that means, darling, because I normally expect to see an A or a B or a C or a D. Right. I don't know. And she said, I know what it stands for. It must be upper class. And I said, oh, that's great. So she picked up the phone, she rang the school, and I just watched my mum on the phone saying, oh, yes. Oh, you're right. Oh, yes, no problem. And she just turned around and in a beautiful way that mums do, she gave me a big thumbs up and she said, everything's going to be okay. And, you know, that, that was wonderful. So I had no qualifications. Um, I left school. I was unemployed. Uh, the government put me on a, an unemployment program and uh, I worked in the National Health Service in the NHS and I was in the finance and wages and salaries department. And from the age of 18, I started working in a local restaurant and I really enjoyed working in the restaurant. And by the time I was 20, I realized that I needed to leave the civil service and the hospital and go and work full time in a restaurant. 
And because of the way staff turn over in restaurants, you know, at the end of the first week, I think I was the manager because um, <laughs> I was the longest, the longest member of staff. And uh, I saved up some money and I opened my own restaurant when I was 22 and I built it up to a group of restaurants and a coffee shop and a bakery and a wholesale fruit and veg business, a wholesale butchers and a florist. And I did that for about nine years and then I got an offer for the restaurants. So I sold the restaurants, which is the largest part of the business and the rest of the businesses I sold off to the people who were running it. And by this time I'd won a competition on television for entrepreneurship. And um, so the government approached me and asked me to, you know, cut some ribbons for enterprise centers and give some speeches about, you know, the importance of growth and private sector and all that. But then once I sold the business, I said to the government, look, I'm a bit, I'm a bit perplexed because I think I'm a fraud. I can't really do these speeches anymore because I don't have a business. <laughs> and so they said, oh, you know, let, let's have a think about it. They came back to me a couple of weeks later and they said, we've got the ideal job for you. I said, okay. They said, we want you to head up the economic regeneration of, Merseyside, which is Liverpool. Right. I said, right. I said, look, I can't read or write. I'm dyslexic. I, I got no qualifications. It's, it's fine. It's fine. We were just looking for a young man like you from the private sector. You'll be able to lead the economic regeneration of, of Merseyside. So Merseyside at that point had male unemployment was 40%. And mm. the whole reason for Liverpool had disappeared because the docks had been automated with containers. Right. So 40,000 men suddenly found themselves, you know, with low skill and no skills and unemployed. Um, and of course, you know, as much as the government would say, well, move to where the jobs are, you can't uproot 40,000 families and just move them to where the next place is. So the place fell into a, a state of decline and, and uh, no fault of the people that are living there, but the place fell into decline. And so I was given this role with 550 civil servants and 100, 100 million pounds a year to invest. Um, and I did that for seven years and I made loads of mistakes and I made a few successes and we got loads of people back to work and we moved the airport and we built five-star hotels and we you know, changed the road structure and mm. trained unemployed people and ran the universities. And it was fantastic. I learned so much doing that. But then the government changed and the Tony Blair government came along and they said, mm, we don't like that type of organization anymore we like this type of organization and so i said that's fine i understand and i've done seven years so i'm very happy to bow out here and so for a year i sort of knocked around and then i saw a business that was for sale i had the opportunity of uh, investing in a business that was turning over three million and i grew that business from three million to 180 million and mm. we went from 65 staff to 5,000 staff <clears throat> and I opened it in 15 countries around the world and that was in um the delivery of poverty reduction programs so helping long-term unemployed people helping people set up in business helping people with debt uh, retraining people skills running schools for kids that have been uh, excluded for bad behavior um, justice system we had 550 staff in 33 prisons and we did that around the world and then i did that for 15 years and then sold that business and since then i've been helping other people with their businesses to give them the impetus to grow and to uh, to be strong and to smash through the glass ceiling that a lot of businesses sit underneath wondering how they can do it. And that's what caused me to write the book, really. Just to, I set out a, the system as to how I believe you can smash through the glass ceiling and, and have the growth you want. Like Sting in Newcastle, the city changed. The demand for yeah, building boats evaporated as it did in Liverpool. Exactly. 
Uh, and you and you did something about it, just as he has. Are you friends with Sting? No, absolutely not. He's, <laughs> he's, far, he's far above my pay grade, Mark. Right. <laughs> well, I've seen him live <laughs> once. He's wonderful. Uh, he's a good, he used to be a school teacher. Yes. I read his biography, Broken Music, three times. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's quite a man. Uh, you, you, you come from where John, Paul, George, and Ringo came from. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. Four of my favorite blokes. Yeah. Well, um, you, you, have, you have this passion for the poor because you were. Because I was. And my dad lost his job when he was 60 and was basically written off. Um, as a plumber and I saw the indignity and the horror that it brings on a man or, or you know or a woman when they lose their job they lose more than their job they lose their dignity yes and they lose their, their presence and their you know I, I may if I may tell you one quick story I was in one yes. of my training centers and a young man a, a man who worked down the pits was stood in the hall of one of our training centers crying his eyes out properly sobbing and, and I said what's the matter have we done something wrong? He said, no, no. He said, me and my twin brother, we both lost our job down the coal mines. And we've, we've been unemployed for nine years. So we're now here, you know, retraining. And I got a job six weeks ago. And the tutor asked me, would I come back and share my story with the people who are still waiting for a job as to how it felt to get a, a job and you know, a uniform and a pay grade? And he said, as I retold my story, it's hit me quite hard to, so I heard for myself how my journey was. And I heard myself saying things out loud that I didn't realize. Mm. So he cried and I cried. He said, you know, my, my kids, Roy, had stopped calling me dad. Mm. He said, my wife had stopped loving me. And he said, even the guy next door didn't even acknowledge me in the street. He said, I became invisible. He said, and now I've got my job. I said, yeah. He said, I, my kids call me dad again. The guy next door acknowledges me. He said, and my wife's fallen in love with me again. He said, so... When I, when I used to talk to my staff, I said, don't ever think you're getting somebody a job. That's, that's the smallest part of it. We're giving people their dignity back. Yeah, self-respect. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, what a blessing that is. Mm. Because I, I, you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. Yes. Yes. You know? I mean, that's what I'm hearing loud and clear. Oh, my yeah. gosh. And your resume is impressive. You, you, long after you sold your businesses, you started doing work worldwide with India. You've done yeah. keynotes all over the world. Yeah. So it, this, my, my so, wife is, my wife is amazed, Mark, because she says, I struggle to listen to you most of the time, Roy. And yet, he's <laughs> obviously getting something right. And I said, well, I tell her my story. She said, I've heard all your stories, Roy. That's the trouble. Yes. You can't be a prophet in your own land. Exactly right. Jesus had to leave Nazareth. They said, who's that kid? He's the carpenter's kid. What does he know? <laughs> you know what? If I went back to Liverpool now and I tried to get a meeting with the lowliest council member of staff, they would chuck me out the door and say, we know, we know you. We know yes. you, clearly. Whereas yeah. I can go to India and have the red carpet rolled out and be welcomed by the president. And, but you're right. A man is never recognized in his own land. They give you a clatter around the logo. Exactly. <laughs> For those that don't know what that means, uh, they're going to box your ears. My mother used to say, yeah. I'll have your guts for garters, right? That's right. Was she English? Oh, yeah. Mom was from Uxbridge. Ah, great. Yeah. My grandfather was a cold stream guard. 
Wow. Yeah, I, I spent summers in England. I used to read the Beano and the Dandy. I'm sure you did too. Ah, yeah, great. I'll have your guts for garters. That's a good yeah, one. Right? I had to look that up, and it means I'm going to take your intestines and use them to hold your socks up. That's it. It's like, what? That's it. That's exactly well, what it means. I, yeah. I don't want that. Well, then you better shape up, mate. You know? <laughs> I have such fond memories of Brighton and Uxbridge and Blackpool and yeah. riding the double-decker buses and the cabs with the flip-down seats and fish and chips on the, yeah. on, on the waterfront. Ugh. Just fond That's memories. That's great. Yeah. It was, I well, came maybe, back talking like this. <laughs> I came back maybe talking we'll with an English accent. Fish. Yeah. Lovely. Brilliant. Excellent. Right? Oh, uh, my listeners Ace. are going to love your accent, mate. They're just, it's so yeah. great. So how does somebody go about getting your book? So the, the book um, is available on Amazon. Um, but the easiest way to get it, it, because I'm not quite sure how this Amazon thing works. It, I, the book is there, but most of the time it says it's out of stock. So I don't quite understand how it works, Mark. So my you can get my book from www. Roy Newey, N E W E Y dot com. And on there, you'll find a shop and you'll be able to buy the book. That's there. awesome. Now, yeah. coming up, you had to have some mentors who changed your life. Who were they? So there's a very, very special guy um, called Frank. Um, and Frank and I met when we were at the Samaritans. I don't know, you know what the Samaritans is, but it's like a, a voluntary service for people who are feeling suicidal so they can ring anonymously and talk over their, their concerns and their worries. And Frank was there and uh, we met up and became good friends. I was, I was perhaps 35 when I met Frank and he was, uh, he would have been you know, 65 mm. and uh, he passed away two years ago, but he was such a good solid friend and such a sound. Like I went to him one night when I was in the government and I had all, all manner of things going wrong. And I, popped in to see him because he lived next door. And I said, he said, what sort of day have you had? I said, totally rubbish, Frank. Mm. He said, why? I said, well, I've got this to sort out and this decision to make, or I could do this or I could do that. And I don't know whether I should do this or should I do that? But he said, well, yes, yes, yes. He said, or you could, um, and he pondered for a moment. He said, or you could just um, do nothing for a few days. And I said, do nothing, do nothing, you mean do nothing. I've got, I've got the world hanging on my every breath. I've got the newspapers waiting to announce. He said, I know, Roy. He said, but sometimes what can seem very, very important today can seem like a distant memory in literally three, four, five days. He said, write it down on a piece of paper, put it in the desk, and see if you just get through tomorrow without having to make a decision about it. And as bizarre as it sounds, it was great advice. You don't yes. always have to make decisions about some of the issues that were, that were you do if you're the prime minister be the president you know you have to respond to that straight away but right. sometimes sometimes things wash away don't they let it percolate yeah let your subconscious do the work you'll come up with an answer exactly yeah you don't have to know how you're going to do it just figure out what you want and why yeah yeah that's and you spent but, your whole life doing that haven't you that was great advice that's it and, and mentors, people that will just tap you on the shoulder and share a couple of small insights for you. 
just uh, move your mind on and then they're gone aren't they you know the people are gone but that impression is left with you for a long time yes and your mentors i suspect were a lot like mine they'd done what you wanted to do and been where you wanted to go so when yes. it came time for answers you'd say well what do i do here and they say ridiculously simple things like well just wait yeah colin powell said in his book you know at, at the height of his success he said no matter what problem he was facing he said things always look different in the morning yes and that's really your point that's just great advice what books yes, the other one the other one mark on similar lines is you know he said to me once he said what is it you worried about and i explained he said will you be worried about this in a year's time mm. and i said no he said so it's nothing really to worry about yes yeah well if you think about it worrying is negative goal setting yes <laughs> True. Right? Uh, the thing i feared the most has come to pass you know it's like okay will you be worried yeah. in a year yeah that's great advice so what books had a profound effect on you i have to suspect you're a voracious reader oh mark i'm i have a i have a terrible secret to share okay listening because i'm dyslexic i've never read a book how amazing is that pregnant pause pregnant pause i've never read a book i've written a few yes. but i've never read one so you listen to books so i've only recently started listening to books but i think because i'm dyslexic because I, I really struggle with my reading and writing mm -hmm. so i i dictated this book you know using the rev.com app yep yep um and then they sent me the the transcription whatever and i, I played about with the you know i can read but it, it it's not something i enjoy doing so because of that i sit and i watch an awful lot yes you know i absorb and i think i've got almost a photographic memory for conversations so when i i chair a lot of board meetings I, you know, I sit on over a hundred boards of different companies and I, I chair board meetings. I sit, sit there and I say, I don't think that's true. Actually, you know, three years ago, you said blah, blah, blah. And you said it with a real inflection on the point that, you know, this, this, and this, and, um, people say that's horrific how you can do that, Roy, you know, you, you weren't even looking at the minutes or, but it, that, that's, so that's what I do. I watch people, Mark, and yes. I absorb by watching, um, and listening, I suppose. I'll make, make, tell you a quick story. I don't know if you've heard of a guy called David Blunkett. No. Uh, but David Blunkett, the right honorable David Blunkett, was, uh, he was born with uh, problems with his eyesight, uh, but by the age of sort of three or four, he was blind. And because he was blind at that time, he's now about 70, 70 years of age. Um, it wasn't deemed appropriate for him to go to school because what's the point of sending a blind boy to school? You know, not going to learn anything. He's never going to come to anything. So, he was never allowed to go to school. So, once he was sixteen, um, he paid, he went to the local college and he studied and he got a degree, and then he amazingly became a, a teacher uh, for uh, fourteen to sixteen-year-old children, um, and he did that for five years. He was elected as a, a local councillor, then he became the leader of the council, then he became the local MP. And then when Tony Blair was elected as prime minister in the UK, he was appointed into his cabinet 
as first of all the home Secretary, the secretary for education and then the home secretary which is one of our sort of top top jobs right um and i worked quite a lot with david on the international stuff and we traveled one day to spain and we were giving a presentation to the, the spanish cabinet about unemployment and how it could be tackled and he he was he was with me and i was sort of hanging on we were working through an interpreter and i was hanging on you know watching everything going on in the room and sort of it was using all of my mental ability to stay with the conversation and david was sat there and he had his braille in front of him and he was sort of you know touching along his braille with his notes and i thought gosh you know you're fantastic to be able to keep up with all of this in a different language and you speak directly to the prime minister as a as an ex-minister from the uk and afterwards in the car on the way away from it i said to him i said david you're an amazing character he said oh it's nothing i said there was me having to you know watch everything read my notes and you were having to do it from braille and he laughed and he reached into his briefcase he took a page of the braille out and he said take this as a memento of today and i said oh thank you he said and if you ever find something that's got a braille reader get them to put that through the braille machine and see what it says and i said right okay what, what why and he said it's the sports pages roy whoa and i said i said it's the sports pages he said he said well it was all very interesting he said but he said i needed to catch up on what was happening with football so he got <laughs> He got the newspaper turned into Braille. And I'm like hanging on their every word. We've got 18 ministers in the room and the prime minister. And he's reading the Braille. He's reading the sports pages. See if Manchester United was winning. Well, I think his, his team is Sheffield United. Okay. Sheffield, yeah. um, which is one of the, I think, the oldest football team in the world. They invented the rules. They've got the original rule book of football there. Yeah. But he's well, a great character. I'm hearing that story and I'm thinking, okay, he was blind, but all of his other senses were dramatically magnified. Yes. And he was actually yes. able to leverage things and hear things that most people don't hear in the same way that you've, yes. you've kind of accommodated your dyslexia by strengthening virtually everything else, yes. your observational skills, your listening skills. Yeah. So it's a blessing, not a curse. It's a blessing. It's, 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 I, I'm so pleased to be dyslexic. Mm. So it, it, it's made, it's made my career so much easier because I got a great piece of advice. I was chairing a, a large government meeting and, um, we used to get these, what we call white papers or green papers from the government, you know, sort of five, 700 page documents on the new ideas for adult education or environmental issues. or Some light reading. Yeah, and sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's like heavy policy, you know, it's like, oh. Right. And so this guy gave me, a, you know, you asked about mentors. This guy gave me a piece of advice. He said, look, Roy, what I suggest you do, he said, don't try and read any of them. I said, all right. He said, just at the beginning of the meeting, just start the meeting and say, before we start today's meeting, can I just go around the table and just say, what were the two things for you that really jumped out of this most recent white paper? Mm. And of course, they'd all get on their high horses and all want to show off to each other as to how they had read the document in depth and how they'd pull out the key points. And so as they rattled around the room, they'd all give me the top, you know, they'd be like, say, 20 people in the room. So they give me the top 40 points, you know, and I'd say, very good. You've covered all the points very well. Should we start the meeting? It <laughs> <laughs> was brilliant. Oh, I, I wish I'd have learned that in high school. I would have saved yeah. so much time. You don't have to read the stuff, do you? Just get other people to read it. They enjoy reading it. So, 
No, you give them so you make them happy by letting them read it. You're asking their opinion. Yeah. William James said the deepest craving in the human condition is the need to be appreciated. And that's what you did. Yes, absolutely. And they did your work for, for you. What's, what's the one thing that people enjoy talking about the most? I mean, mine, George Harrison. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I, I, I asked this question on airplanes and I know you've spent a lot of time on airplanes as I have. Uh, I, I say, how did you get started in this business? And I can't tell you how many relationships I've formed and deals I've closed because all I did was ask a single question and listen. Wow. wow. Great one. That's one, great. One gentleman talked for three hours. I was a brand new sales rep and he talked for three hours. And then finally he said, like he'd just woken up from a coma and he said, so why are you here? <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to steal oh, that one. Oh, it was a $50,000 deal. And, and it was like, uh, done. You know, all I did was listen. I said, well, I said, based on all the things you've told me, I think I can help you lower your costs and improve the service. He goes, great. Put something together. That was it. Fantastic. I love all I, that. All I bloody well did was listen. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's so simple. It's, a, it's crazy. So you're this, they call you the torchbearer for the poor right? Well, it's really clear that you don't just have a passion for that. It's a part of your DNA. Oh, yeah. It's part of who yeah, you yeah. are. Yeah. And they also call you the passionate leader of global education. Expand on that if you would. So when I did 250 visits to India and I had a business in India that was educating people on, that were trying to live on less than a dollar a day. Um, huge, huge numbers of people. We'd have 200,000 people on a training program at any one time. Um, and I went up to the state of Bihar and I went to um, present some certificates here, some awards and like a graduation ceremony for the, the skills programs that we've been running. And so I'm having, handing out certificates, having my photograph taken and shaking hands, handing out certificates. And this guy comes up to me and he says, you know, Mr. Newey, I in an Indian accent, he said, Mr. Newey, you must honor me by coming to my house for dinner this evening. So I said, oh, that would be so kind. I, I would love to, but I, I just really can't. I'm sorry. He said, please, Mr. Newey, you must come to meet my family. I'm so grateful. I said, no, no, it's what you've done. He said, oh, no, please, Mr. Newey. So in the end, in a moment of weakness, I said, okay, great. I'll come to your house for dinner then. So my staff looked at me as if to say, don't, you know, don't do this. What are you so, doing? Um, yeah. <laughs> they were like, don't, please don't do this. You know, anyway. So my driver took me to this spot that he's, he arranged to meet me on the side of a dual carriageway. And I went in and I stood there and he appeared and he said, oh, hello, Mr. Newey. He said, let me take your hand, follow me. And he ran me across the dual carriageway, which I thought was odd. I thought, if you're going to go that side of the road, why don't we meet that side of the road? Anyway, we stopped in the central reservation and in the central reservation between the two crash barriers, which was about sort of, you know, two meters wide, there was a, a corrugated iron tin hut and he said my family is so proud to meet you and he took me inside the tin hut and he was living in the middle of the you know the dual carriageway mm. and i walked in and had one little room and there was three school three children there all in their beautiful white shirts and school uniforms and his wife who was just dressed beautifully and they'd made something to eat and so we sat on the ground and the cars going past in our direction he said we are safe here because the robbers won't attack us because you know we are surrounded by cars 
So I said, right. He said, my message to you is that I want to thank you because you have made me, you have made me um, famous for the next 200 years. So I said, why is that? He said, because I am the first person in my family to ever have a paid job where I pay taxes. And because of that, I can afford to send my children to school. He said, so their children will be told that because our grand, because our father went to a paid job, we got to go to school, which is why you're going to college. He said, and they will tell their children that grandfather got a job. We went, they, my parents went to school. We went to college and that's why you're going to university. He said, and eventually in 200 years from now, they will still be talking about me and the fact that now my sons and daughters and my great grandsons and daughters are doctors and dentists. And he said, and it started with you. I said, I was, I had tears rolling down my face. I said, right. it started with you. And he said, this is how legacies are made. You've started a legacy in my family that I can never thank you for enough. I was like, a shade tree they get to sit under. Yeah. Yeah. And another, another guy in Liverpool, I went to, a, I went to, you, you may have heard of a place called Kirby. I went to, to Kirby and I was asked to hand awards out. And the room had about 700 people in it and I was handing awards out and had my photograph taken. And all of a sudden the, the announcer said, and I would like to ask, you know, whatever the guy's name was, Fred Bloggs, to come up and have, receive his certificate from, from Roy. And he had been awarded the lowest certificate you could possibly get what we call an NVQ level one. But as his name was announced and he walked up from the back, um, I recognized him because everybody stood up and gave him a, a round of applause, standing ovation, 700 people in the room. As he walked up from the back, I recognized him because he had a dinner suit on. He was the doorman you know, that welcomed me into the venue. Right. And he shook my hand and I shook his hand and he wouldn't let go and he kept shaking the hand and I kept shaking and I said, and he, he started crying. He said, I am so, so pleased to meet you. I said, no, no, I'm, you've done an amazing job. He said, I am so proud of today. And I said, right. He said, because my father was a steward on the ships in Liverpool and he died when I was seven. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, and now I am 58 years of age. I've been unemployed for 25 years. He said, and I now have my first job here. And I said, Wow. He said, and my, when my father died, he only left me one thing. And I said, right. He said, this suit was left hanging in the wardrobe for me when he died. And he said, tonight is the first night I get to wear that suit. Wow. 51 years he'd waited to wear his dad's suit. And you gave him the opportunity. Wow. You created it was well, a double wow. Yeah. And... You realize you're making a difference in people's lives, but yeah. not just, not just there. You tell us about, I'm going to see if I pronounce this correctly. Colmondedly Castle, the tough mutter. Oh yes. So you're a tough mutter. Well, well, these, the, the, I wasn't doing it. My family were doing it. I was, I was observing their madness, but in the UK, we have something called the tough mutter. <laughs> Yes, they, we have it here too. My son's done they, it. Yes. Right. They climb through slime and they, you know, run through mud and they slip down hills and all that sort of stuff. And it lasts about, I think it must have lasted three, four, five hours or something to complete right. this sort of 15 mile course around the, this Chomondly castle. Well, well pronounced. Um, and as I stood there observing all these people running around, I thought, I looked at them and I thought, 
you're all employees somewhere. And here you are helping each other up these slimy poles, helping each yes. other up these greasy ropes, pushing yourself to the extreme, going through buckets of mud. And right. some of them, even at the end, there's this thing where they get electrocuted as they run through. <laughs> yeah. And, and the shocking. thing is, there's a way, yeah, shocking. And there's a way around all of these obstacles. They can walk around them if they want to, but no, they line no, up. They go through, through it. the pain. Yeah. And I saw that, and I thought, this is so interesting because here are all these employees, and I bet you, this was a Sunday, I thought, I bet you when they go to work tomorrow, a proportion of them will be truculent, difficult, demotivated employees that the boss is pulling their hair out with. And yet here they are, sweating blood and guts, helping each other and working as a team to get through slimy mud. Yes. And I thought, for employers, we all have to think sometimes, don't we? What is it that we do to people when they walk in through the doors of our premises to demotivate and, and, and hurt people so much that they can't be bothered to put the, the effort into our work? And yet here they are volunteering for something and sweating blood and guts. Yeah. It's a metaphor. Yeah. And if you can do that, and you're only going to succeed if you help each other. Complete strangers. Yeah. Subjected it's to the worst kind of indignity. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Did you, did you, did you, this, I, I'm going to be very embarrassed now because I won't be able to remember the gentleman's name. He's just passed away, but he did one of the most famous TED Talks, the teacher from Liverpool. He ended up living in Los Angeles for the last part of his life, but he was a, an inspector of schools in Liverpool. And he, his, his TED Talk was about how schools drive out the creativity of people. Yes. And, um, you know, the, he said that we get kids in there, he said, and we crush them until they've got no creativity left. We tell them to sit still and blah, blah, blah. Right. He said, I was doing this inspection and the teacher had said to draw, draw something. He said, and so the kids were drawing. He said, but one young girl at the back of the room, she was eight years old, was furiously craning this, you know, picture. He said, so I thought, as an, an education inspector, I'm interested in that. I went across and looked at it. He said, there was blue and black and yellow and purple and orange and pink and circles and zip zap zoops all over it he said so i knelt down to her and i said that's a very beautiful picture and she went thank you he said do you mind me asking what it is that you're drawing and she said yes i'm drawing a picture of god and he went oh that'll be interesting because i don't think anybody knows what god looks like and she said well if you'd leave me alone you'll find out very quickly won't you <laughs> she knows she knows you just back back off. I'll, you can have a look what God looks like in a minute. She's drawn outside the lines. You're not supposed to do that. Exactly. Oh. Great. Well, in, in your article about the Tough Mudder, you said seven lessons. Number one, set a clear vision. Number two, set exciting challenges. Three, engage with teams who work with us every day. Four, set high expectations enough to stretch your team shape and challenge your teams to support everyone, make the work fun and inclusive, and finally celebrate and exhort the wonderful things our staff does on a daily basis. Is there better advice for an organization than that? Yeah. Thanks, Bloody Mike. right, mate. Bloody right, mate. Oh, I'm telling you. It's just brilliant. So what, what, what's your next book, Mark? Well, like you, during COVID, I've written three ebooks, and now I have to decide Excellent. which one I'm going to uh, 
uh, unlike you, I, I write every day and, and it's a passion for me. But yes. my big challenge is sifting through and deciding which, which one to do. Uh, I've started a, uh, I'm launching a, something called Stone Soup Group. It's for authors and speakers, and aspiring authors and speakers. And it's a community. It's a collective. Yeah. And yes. uh, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be wonderful and encourage you to, to join for all of $49 yeah, a month. Crazy. Yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely going to stay in touch with you. This has been honest to goodness. This has been one of the most delightful conversations I've had. <laughs> you, You're a charmer, Mark, aren't you? You're a charmer. Mate, you have double bandwidth. You know, they, they asked <laughs> Bill Gates this, somebody, somebody, one of, one of his coworkers, they said, can you describe Bill Gates? He goes, yeah, he has double bandwidth. <laughs> you know but you have a gift my friend and the gift is you're a recanteur yes i'm really glad you can't read and don't like to yes because what you do is you listen to and remember stories that change people's lives yes that's right that's what i'm a storyteller you I'm are indeed and that's probably all you did with your book now i need to get your book and i, yeah. and I will after i hang up i'll order it and I'm going to yeah. read it, but I'm going to be singing your praises from the rooftops for a long time. Thank you so much. And it's been uh, a pleasure to, to have this chance to, to meet up with you and across the, um, the, the oceans. And you've got a big day in America today. Yes. Almost as big as November 5th for you. That's right. Well, yeah, but we, we tend to burn Parliament down on that day. <laughs> Would you mind explaining what number, November 5th is for all the bloody Yanks across the pond? Yeah. So unbelievably, um, Guy Fawkes was a, a chap who was against the government in something like 1640, people will correct me, but something like the 16th century, and he was against the parliament. So he went underneath the houses of parliament in the, the sort of the dungeons, and he got a load of um, dynamite and gunpowder, it was called the gunpowder plot. And on the 5th of November, during a big parliamentary speech, he intended to blow parliament up and kill all the parliamentarians that were in there. And uh, fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, um, somebody um, told the, the police on him, and he was arrested, and he was taken to the Tower of London and tortured repeatedly, and then hung, drawn, and quartered, um, which, is, which is grim uh, uh, for his sins. And so ever since then, we have a, a celebration on the 5th of November called Guy Fawkes Night, or Bonfire Night. Yes. And they... They make an effigy of him and put him in the middle of the bonfire and they burn the bonfire and they burn the effigy of Guy Fawkes on that night. A celebration. My friend, thank you so much. We're going to run out thank of time you. here any minute. Thanks. And uh, what a blessing. Uh, keep yes. making a difference in the world. And you. Thank you very much for your time, Mark. Take care. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye bye. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Fujitsu General America. And like this podcast, they're focused on education and development. From the day they sold their first comfort system in North America, they've been unwavering in their focus on training. It doesn't matter if it's application, installation, or service. A better trained technician brings better value to the homeowner. So when you're looking for infinite comfort, think Fujitsu. Thank you for listening. If I struck a chord, inspire you to action, or piqued your curiosity, let me know. Call or text me. 206-697-0454 or send me an email at mark at sparkingsuccess.net Should you wish to hire me to speak to your organization or association or order one of my books, simply go to my website www.sparkingsuccess.net
And remember, make it a great day, unless you have other plans.